Would you turn with me to Article 35 of the Belgic Confession? It's in the back. We're going to start in a paragraph on page 854. 854 and read to the end of the article. Last week, Sunday evening, if you were here, we read the first part of that whole um, article. It's a long one about Lord's Supper, and we'll review that in a moment. Uh, but we're going to start at the bottom of page 854 uh, to kind of summarize what was read before and then carry on. So this banquet, you see the very last paragraph there. This banquet is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. At that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death as he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. And then we carry on. Moreover, though the sacraments and things signified are joined together, not all receive both of them. The wicked person certainly takes the sacrament to his condemnation but does not receive the truth of the sacrament, just as, in Ju just as Judas and Simon the sorcerer both indeed received the sacrament, but not Christ, who was signified by it. He is communicated only to believers. Finally, with humility and reverence, we receive the holy sacrament in the gathering of God's people as we engage together with thanksgiving in a holy remembrance of the death of Christ our Savior, and as we thus confess our faith and Christian religion. Therefore, no one should come to this table without examining himself carefully, lest by eating this bread and drinking this cup, he eat and drink judgment to his own, or eat and drink to his own judgment. In short, by the use of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. Therefore, we reject as desecrations of the sacraments all the muddled ideas and damnable inventions that men have added and mixed in with them. And we say that we should be content with the procedure that Christ and the apostles have taught us and speak of these things as they have spoken of them. So far from the Belgic Confession. And you'll notice that the scripture passage that was referred to in there was from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So that's where we're going for our scripture reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you, or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So one ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we'll not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, my sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, they should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come... I'll give further directions. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, last week, Sunday evening, as Pastor Betsy introduced us to what the Lord's Supper is all about, based on this Article 35 of the Belgic Confession, she did so by beginning to use the imagery of nourishment. So she introduced us, as you may remember, to the term anamesis. I think of something like that. I remember how the word was said. A term that refers to what happens when we partake of the bread and the juice. When we partake of the bread or the wine or juice, as the case may be, it's as if we were there at that last supper when Jesus and his disciples sat together just before Jesus' death. So our eating, our sitting at the table brings, it, brings us back, as it were, it reminds us of what was. And then if you remember, Pastor Betsy said it was like her now eating dumplings that followed her grandmother's recipe. Being together with her family now and eating a meal with dumplings brings her back to when she was about 10 years old when her grandmother made the dumplings. The smells, the tastes, and so forth brought her back to what was. In like manner, the Lord's Supper brings us back to the days of Jesus, and we remember what took place at the Last Supper. But the Lord's Supper is about much more than merely remembering what was. For the meal also nourishes us in our present life. This Lord's Supper meal is not just some relic from the past that brings us something that brings us to something that was and has little meaning for us today. On the contrary, it's a meal in which something, as the Belgic Confession says, something actually happens. It's a meal through which we are nourished by the true presence of the living Lord. And as Pastor Betsy mentioned, just how exactly we are nourished is hard to articulate. And both Guido de Bray and the author of the Belgic, the author of the Belgic Confession and John Calvin would suggest that there's much mystery here. 
But what we eat and drink is in Je indeed Jesus' body and blood. Not the actual body and blood, but the elements are, just, are more than just symbols. There's a nourishment going on through the working of the Holy Spirit, a nourishment of our faith and of our spiritual life. So if you look earlier in Article 35, and you may remember uh, that the Article 35 talks about each person having two lives in them, the temporal, the physical, and the spiritual. And so for the nourishment of our physical lives, we eat, as the, as the Confession puts it, we eat earthly and material bread. Whereas to maintain the spiritual and the heavenly life that belongs to believers, says Article 35, God has sent a living bread that came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ. And then we go to John 6 and we read, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And so we most deeply experience the sacrament of communion when we understand, as it were, all the layers of meaning. As Pastor Betsy put it last week, quote, not only do we remember Jesus' death, but through the sacrament we are joined to the Creator and sustained until the day when Jesus comes again, unquote. And even beyond that, actually, even beyond that day when Jesus comes again, through this meal, we look forward to communing with Jesus and all the saints in that eternal feast on the new heaven or the new heaven and the new earth. So when we think of all of this, when we think of communion, uh, then I must say that from a pastoral perspective, it's it's wonderful to serve communion. And oh, how special it is for God's people to join at the table of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a very simple meal in which we remember and in which we are nourished. But now how do we come to that meal? What are the table manners that we need to have, so to speak? Well, I grew up in a home where we ate supper together. That was required, that was expected. Every, every day. And through such meals, we were not only reminded of what happened that day, but we were also nourished. And not only was it important as a family to eat together, but there were a number of things that were quite necessary in order for us to meet. First of all, all of our hands had to be washed, and the washroom facilities had to be used before the meal time. Secondly, the table had to be properly set. Just so, knives, forks, spoons, serviettes, you know, all the different things that had to be right in place. Thirdly, we had to come on time. And I remember in our home, we used to have a gong hanging in the hallway. And when it went once, that meant, or twice, that meant that we had to get ready. And once meant we had to be sitting at the table. Never knew what happened to that gong. It disappeared somewhere along the way. But in a family of 10 people, it was important to be on time. After all, the meal was not supposed to last all evening, and people couldn't be served whenever they happened to show up. 
And besides that, we had to have our devotions. We had to begin with prayer, and we had to end with the Bible reading and with prayer once again. And finally, when it was time to eat, we had to, everything had to circulate in one way around the table, and we had to use both a fork and a knife, and we were required to finish absolutely everything that was on the plate. And so I grew up with a proper preparatory time and with a rather strict table manners, which were not all bad, actually. The meal was time for nour nourishment, and we had to eat what the pot offered, whether we liked it or not. And I remember as a kid that when we had friends over, they would often make some sort of a remark about what they experienced <laughs> at our dinner table. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes about the preparations and the table manners, if you will, uh, that ought to accompany the celebration of Lord's Supper. In my family, you didn't just come to the table. You know, no shirts, no shoes, no service, that, that kind of thing. A&W at the time, I remember I used to have an ad, the A&W restaurant chain used to have an ad, you know, hop in the car, come as you are to A&W. Remember that jingle? Some of you may or may not, I'm not sure. Somehow that always sticks in my head, that jingle. That was not allowed in my house, and it wasn't exactly what Paul would say about the Lord's Supper either, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and following, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Wow. Some preparations need to be made. Those are scary words when you come to think of it. Who wants to eat and drink judgment on themselves? Indeed. We're called upon to examine ourselves. Or as the old Lord's Supper form of youth forms put it, we're called upon to examine our lives, our hearts, our consciences, and to stay away from the supper if there would be no repentance. Even the Belgic Confession talks about examining ourselves before coming to the table, lest we eat and drink judgment against themselves. And certainly Debray says that we ought to be sure that we don't participate like Judas or Simon the sorcerer, who really kind of made fun of the meal and who drank and ate judgment upon themselves. Now, the warning of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, was written to a church where there was a breakdown of community, unity, and fellowship. Upon reading some of the opening chapters of the letters of, of 1 Corinthians, one quickly begins to see that indeed, indeed there were all sorts of divisions among the members in Corinth. People followed different teachers and so forth. There were challenges to the authority of the apostles. There was immorality among the members, lawsuits once one against another, issues with marriages in the congregation, issues of idol worship, and so forth. The Corinthian church had its issues, to say the least. And then in chapter 11, the apostle talks about worship and how some of the difficulties and the divisions mentioned earlier in the letter came to reality when they met for worship. Paul says he certainly had no praise for the church in this regard. In fact, their gathering as a church did more harm than good. In other words, it's almost like Paul was saying, you guys might as well forget it. Don't bother getting together. So 
harsh judgment, but as verse 17 puts it, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, which is inappropriate for the church and certainly inappropriate when you come to the table of the Lord. That speaks about unity. The specific issue of 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 30, 34 involves Lord's Supper practices that were inhospitable and divisive. Let me quote from uh, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Weimar of Calvin Seminary as he explains this passage. He says, The church in Corinth, like other congregations well into the second century, celebrated the Lord's Supper as part of a dinner or full meal. The whole church would first break bread at the beginning of the meal to remember Christ's death. Then they would eat their main course, and finally at the end of the meal they would drink wine also to remember Christ's death. Note 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying. The problem was the main course that took place between these two acts of remembrance, the Corinthians were celebrating the supper in a way that created divisions. They were guilty. The guilty were the wealthy, those who have homes, whose conduct at these meals involved despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing, verse 22. In fact, things got so out of hand that poor members, church members, left the worship services hungry while the rich members staggered home drunk, verse 21. And although we cannot know with certainty what led to divisions over the Lord's Supper at Corinth, it is clear that the problem involved social discrimination. The wealthy Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper in a way that despised and humiliated their poor poorer fellow believers. And that was not to be. That was totally wrong. The table manners were the pits. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that the Lord's Supper means something. The Lord's Supper is important. As we note from 1 Corinthians 11, going to the table of the Lord includes doing a number of things. Doing this in remembrance of Jesus, verses 24 and 25. Eating and drinking, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, verses 26 and 27. Examining ourselves, verse 28. Discerning or recognizing the body, verse 29. Waiting for one another, verse 33. All those things are going on at the time of the celebration of Lord's Supper. And so in dealing with this reality in Corinth, the Apostle Paul now outlines some principles, as it were, for participation. And he says the Lord's Supper ought not to be approached casually. There are some table manners or rules or expectations that need to be considered. And these don't need to be real strict so that you knock all kinds of people away from the table. But these ought to be real and they ought to be done every time we come for Lord's Supper. So each person is called upon to examine themselves in terms of their relationship to others in the fellowship. They are to set aside all, quote, as one person wrote, quote, all arrogance, all inhospitality, all self-centeredness, and wait for, welcome, and receive one another in the celebration itself. Lord's Supper, you see, is a feast given to the church, to the people of God, and so we celebrate it in the context of this body. It's not a private meal. 
And through it, we're called upon to reflect on the fact that the body of Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. So we're called upon to reflect upon Jesus' body given for us. And then we're also called upon to reflect on the church as the body of Christ. So as a body, we gather around the body with the body, so to speak. As a body, we're called upon to examine our relationship to Christ. How is our relationship with him? How is our faith? Do we accept that we are sinners? Do we know that Jesus is the only Savior? We're called upon to examine our relationship with our fellow believers and to celebrate the sacrament in a manner that does not exclude or humiliate other members of the body. And so not only do we need to think about who Jesus is and what he did, but we also need to think about what it means to be the church, a community that embodies Christ's presence and mission. And as we think about what it means to be church, we need to think about who is also included in that body and who we exclude when we gather at the table. The writers of the Faith Formation Report to Synod 2011 wrote, quote, whoever partakes unworthily will eat and drink judgment against themselves and be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. In Corinth, this meant that some became weak or ill and some died, verse 30 the result of God's disciplinary action. Thus, Paul invites us to think of the consequences of improper participation as a matter of divine discipline. Whether this discipline comes to us through natural consequences of our actions or through divine intervention in natural processes, it's clear that inhospitality and indifference to others will have consequences. Indeed, if we don't root out arrogance and self-centeredness, will let a cancer grow inside our churches. If we simply rehearse hypocrisy rather than resisting it, we will grow increasingly insensitive to others and cause untold harm. Wow. Debray writes, the wicked certainly take the sacrament to their condemnation, but do not receive the truth of the sacrament, just as Judas, the disciple, and the one who partook in the Last Supper, and Simon the sorcerer from Acts 8, who tried to buy the salvation from the apostles, both indeed received the sacrament, but not Christ, who is signified by it. The sacrament is communicated only to believers. What a wonderful meal this is. Remembrance and nourishment it's a meal that speaks volumes to us about God's grace in Christ Jesus. And by this sacrament, we are moved not to division, but to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. And therefore, the Lord's Supper ought never to be approached casually. And yes, we don't have the preparatory time anymore like we used to in the applicatory time like we used to because we don't do this four times a year. We do this once a month plus some. And so we ought to be examining ourselves at all times, which is why we also have confession of our sins every, every Sunday when we gather for worship. And we're called upon to do that at home too. But each person is to continually called upon to examine themselves in terms of their relationship not only to Christ, but also to others in the fellowship. 
We are to set aside all arrogance, all inhospitality and self-centeredness and wait for and welcome and receive one another in the celebration itself. And when we do that, when we truly do that, then we'll understand something of God's gift to us in Christ and then we'll truly celebrate to the glory of God himself. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the feast, for the Lord's Supper, and for the way in which it nourishes us and sustains us and gives us strength for each new day once again. Thank you, Lord, that it builds our faith. And thank you that there is something actually happening at that supper. And so, Lord, we pray that as we move forward and as we participate in communion once again in a few weeks, we ask that we may be constantly examining ourselves as to our relationship to you, as, we are, as to our relationship to our fellow believers. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may work for unity and that we may work in such a way that we are fervent in our love for you and for our neighbor. Continue to build us up through the working of your Holy Spirit and forgive us, O oh Lord, when we become so rigid and so tight about the rules that we push people away. Father, thank you for your word and your spirit. Thank you for the confessions of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.